This is CNN Breaking News. Uh, welcome to The Lead. We have some breaking news for you. I'm Jake Tapper. Moments ago, we learned there is a settlement, a settlement in the high-stakes trial between Dominion Voting Systems and Fox. Dominion was suing Fox for $1.6 billion, saying that the network showed complete and utter disregard for truth and facts and accuracy when they allowed guests and hosts to push false conspiracy theories that the 2020 election had been stolen from Donald Trump. CNN's Oliver Darcy is outside the courthouse in Delaware. Oliver, what do we know about the settlement? We know right now, the judge just announced actually moments ago, Jake, that this case has been settled out of court. We don't know any details about what happened, but there was this unexplained two-hour delay in court proceedings. This settlement really comes right before the clock struck struck midnight, Jake. Uh, opening statements were set to begin at 1.30. They did not uh, as scheduled, and the, there was an unexplained delay. Lawyers were seen going in and out of court, and now we're getting word from the judge that this $1.6 billion case has been settled by both Dominion Voting Systems and Fox News. This, of course, averts a trial that would have been an agonizing process for Fox News. You would have seen top stars like Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson have to testify along with Rupert Murdoch, the aging Fox chairman. He's 92 years old. He would have had to come down to Wilmington, take the stand. And so none of that's going to happen because there has been a settlement reached. The judge just dismissed the jury. And this case is coming to a really stunning conclusion after two years of making its way through the court to the brink of trial. And Oliver, were there settlement talks in the days leading up to this trial, uh, settlement talks that didn't pan out? Um, It seems that there were. Obviously, they did settle, so there must have been settlement talks. We know that Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal reported uh, on Sunday evening that there was a late push by Fox to settle this case, and that was matched by a few other outlets. Uh, But the jury selection did resume earlier today. Uh, and they, they did get sworn in by the judge. And so it looked, you know, like this trial was going to happen. And people were, you know, going in a court earlier at 1.30 for opening statements. There was that unexpected delay. We did see um, our CNN's Marshall Cohen in court. He saw a Fox lawyer take out a piece of paper and show it to a Dominion lawyer. Then they went outside the courtroom. It was unclear what was discussed, but it seems right now, given the news, that they were talking about a settlement and and that has been reached, really averting a a really excruciating process for Fox News that was set to take place here in Wilmington, Delaware, over the next six weeks, Jake. And Oliver, I I can't help but recalling uh, that we learned after the 2020 election uh, that the family of that poor murdered uh, DNC staffer Seth Rich had also uh, reached a, a settlement with Fox. Uh, for its lies about Seth Rich. Uh, And part of the arrangement that Fox had with the family of Seth Rich and the insane and cruel conspiracy theories they pushed uh, was that, A, there would be um, a non-disclosure agreement so the family of Seth Rich can't talk about it, and B, that news of it wouldn't even come out, Oliver, until after the 2020 election. Yeah, and it will be interesting to see whether a public apology is part of this settlement. We don't really have any details. Again, this just broke seconds before we came on the air, Jake. Um, but, you know, this is such an interesting moment. This would, this trial would have really put Fox uh, on trial for the election lies they told 
in the wake of the 2020 contest. This was really going to hold the network potentially accountable for that. So we're not going to see this public trial where people like Murdoch would have had to answer to this jury why they allow these uh, deranged conspiracy theories to take hold on the network's air, despite, as we know, as a result of this trial, as a result of the discovery, that they knew these lies were not true, that they were unhinged from reality. Um, we're not going to see that process take place in court, Jake. I know that there were a lot of people that wanted this process to take place in court because outside the, uh, you know, the media defamation case, uh, this was also a really, to some extent, a trial built about, uh, made about democracy and, and democracy at large and elections. So, you know, this is going to avert all of that. It's, it's going to save Fox, I think, a lot more added embarrassment. Um, but again, Jake, this case has been settled outside of court. It will be interesting to see what those details are. Oliver, if we, we I, ever do see what the details are. Yeah, I mean, are. through discovery, though, we have learned why Fox did what they did with the release of all those text messages and emails that they, they they allowed these lies to go forward because they were afraid that their viewers who believed the lies were going to change the channel uh, because they are far more about profit than they are about journalism. I mean, that's what came out in Discovery, right? That's exactly right, Jake. This This trial really underscored that Fox News lacks the most basic news ethics. A lot of things that we saw would have been fireable offenses any, at any legitimate news organization. But at Fox, this stuff came from the top. And, and you really saw it in black and white as a result of this trial. You saw messages where they talked about fearing the audience was going to leave to other smaller right-wing talk channels like Newsmax. And you saw them, uh, Tucker Carlson, talking about the stock price tanking. Really remarkable, stunning inside details in the wake of the 2020 election that it showed the panic inside of Fox News and why they protect, uh, perhaps you know, allow these election lies to take hold on the network. Uh, you know, it gave us a view inside Fox that, frankly, we have never seen before. Of course, we would have learned more during this trial, seeing someone like Rupert Murdoch being forced to take the stand and be cross-examined by Dominion. But we have learned a lot about how Fox operates, the dishonest way it operates, as a result of the proceedings that led up to the potential trial. Right. And we also saw that when reporters uh, like Kristen Fisher, who now works at CNN, not coincidentally, uh, tried to fact check uh, people at in the executive branch of Fox, uh, other anchors, uh, hosts in the primetime opinion hours would get mad. They would get mad when people asserted facts uh, on their air, people in the news division. And in fact, a lot of the people Kristen Fisher, who's now at CNN, but also a lot of other people like Chris Steyerwalt and others who were trying to assert facts were ultimately let go from Fox. Yeah, I mean, it, it was really remarkable to read these details because not only were they uh, promoting lies about the election, but they were disciplining staff behind the scenes for trying to tell the truth about the election. Uh, and it's, it's really showed and highlighted the fact-free universe in which Fox operates, which actually, to some degree, would have made this process of this trial, if it were to have happened, more agonizing for the network. Because the network is used to sailing through controversies by misleading viewers, bad faith attacks on critics, attacking the media. Those things, Jake, would not have been allowed in a trial. The judge would have compelled Fox to put forth a honest, fact-based 
uh, narrative for the jury. And so that would have been a very uncomfortable position, I think, for Fox, especially given the hand they had uh, been dealt. I mean, it was very clear that they were dishonest about what happened in the wake of the 2020 election. The judge already ruled that they had broadcast false material. So it would have been up to the jury basically to decide whether they had broadcast that false material with actual malice or, you know, reckless disregard for the truth. And I got to say, and I, I talked to a lot of First Amendment lawyers, Dominion had really assembled a damning set of evidence from messages and emails that uh, showed that, you know, it, potentially they did uh, cross that line into knowingly broadcasting the false material, which would have been actual malice and which would have uh, probably resulted or, or potentially resulted in, in Dominion winning this case, Jake. Oliver Darcy outside the courthouse in Wilmington, Delaware for us. Thank you so much. Um, so uh, just to bring you this news, Delaware Superior Court Judge Eric Davis uh, has praised uh, both lawyers for Fox and lawyers for Dominion after they abruptly settled uh, this case, Dominion suing Fox for defamation. Uh, the case was settled at the last second. The judge saying, quote, I have been on the bench since 2010. I think this is the best lawyering I've ever had. Uh, judge Davis went on to say, quote, I would be proud to be your judge in the future. The hearing and the case are now over. Let's bring in CNN legal analysts, Laura Coates and Ellie Honig. Uh, Laura, uh, a settlement just as the trial was set to begin. And we should remind viewers that Dominion, even though it was taking this stance against the lies of Fox uh, and it was taking its, this stance demanding accountability from Fox, Dominion is owned by a New York private, equi private equity firm. Uh, and so if they were given an opportunity to have a big check sent to them, they were probably going to take it. The idea here, what you're seeing is the power of pretrial motions, right? The motions that you will hear that the judge will resolve before a jury ever hears anything. This is even outside of the court of public opinion. And we've seen a lot with all the things that would have been entered into evidence, text messages, confirmation that what they believed was very in contrast to what they actually said on air. But the second the judge said, look, you're not going to be able to cloak yourself in the First Amendment and tell this jury that everything you ever say is protected speech without consequence at all. That was really the probably the beginning of these serious settlement discussions because then the leverage and the power dynamic instantly shifted in favor of Dominion because then they all they had to prove, Jake, was not that what you said was false, check, they've already determined that, but instead that you had either actual malice, meaning you know what you said was false, or you had every reason to believe that what you were saying was false and you said it anyway. And finally, you also have the notion here that you can't do a cleanup crew. The judge had already admonished the Fox team on this very point. Just because you maybe had a fact checker later on on a different broadcast or at some point in the future try to say, well, actually, here's an alternate reality or the truth, as many of us know it, that doesn't mean you didn't either earlier defame someone. So this is what happens in many, many trials across the country all the time that once the reality of a jury of 12 deciding the fate to the tune of, well, a billion or more in this case, suddenly the parties say, you know what, let's be more reasonable. Ellie, um, there's so Fox does this um, not infrequently. Uh, they paid tens of millions of dollars uh, when it came to settling sexual harassment and, and assault uh, lawsuits uh, reportedly uh, against Bill O'Reilly. Uh, there was a big lawsuit uh, being threatened or at least some sort of out-of-court settle, out uh, settlement was reached with the family uh, of Seth Rich. 
Uh, and a lot of the details of those settlements, we just do not know. The public does not know. Will we learn the details of this settlement? Uh, if so, when? And is there a chance we'll never know? There is a chance we'll never know, Jake. That's really part of this settlement itself. As you said, it's quite common for litigants, including Fox News, to have as part of the settlement agreement a confidentiality agreement around it, saying no, neither side can disclose the number. Of course, we're all very interested to know the number here. The reason that Fox settles, the reason any party settles, is because jury trials are inherently unpredictable. There is inherently an element of risk here. And I think from Fox's point of view, I'm, you know, we'll see what the price tag is here. If I had to guess, I would guess it's quite hefty because they were looking at major problems. First of all, they could get hit with an enormous verdict if this went all the way through to a jury verdict, given the strength of the evidence against them. The second thing is they were looking at a potentially disastrous spectacle where their leading hosts, journalists, reporters would have to take the stand to be cross-examined about their own contradictory statements. That would be absolutely devastating to Fox. So I think you can readily understand their incentive here in settling this. But um, Laura, I'm I'm not a lawyer. I, I don't know much about this kind of thing. Uh, Dominion was suing for $1.6 billion. Um, Is that like a realistic price tag that they could have gotten from Fox? Uh, What do you you think the situation, I mean, obviously it's all speculative, but could they have gotten $1.6 billion? What do you think they would have had to, Fox would have had to offer to settle? Well, Fox believed that number was grossly exaggerated and not accurate. But what it was based on, according to the Dominion lawyers, is the idea of either two things. Every time you're assessing damage, which results in either a reputational harm or otherwise, either the profit that you stand to lose. Usually if there is a fixed amount of time in terms of the impact, the statements that are made. You're less profitable. You calculate the profit. The other way is kind of the enterprise, meaning what is the hit you will take on a permanent basis to your actual business and the integrity that you will never be able to recoup over a period of time. It seemed that the bulk of their claim had to do with the latter of it. Not only the idea they were going to lose business, but that they had taken such a fatal blow to their integrity. There are actual counties, as you know, we've covered here on CNN, that chose no longer to use Dominion because of the allegations that were present and unfounded. And that took a hit at an exponential level. So likely it's based on that. But as, as Ellie talked about, juries have a mind of their own. And when they believe that actual malice is involved, which could have resulted here, then you could have an even a significant one to a different tune. What that number is, we might never know. And also, let's talk about the court of public opinion here. Listen, we all leaned in when we heard about these text messages. We wanted to know about this. The idea of, gosh, what would this spectacle look like? And the irony that truth would actually be on trial and be what the main and star witness was and out of the mouths of those who have been accused of never having told it. Ellie, is there any chance that Fox uh, would have to admit guilt or make some sort of public apology as part of this deal? That can absolutely be part of a negotiated settlement agreement. The reporting has been that Dominion was very interested in getting some sort of statement from Fox. No matter what, though, Jake, I think it's really important to know Dominion has done its job here, even with this settlement. What they have done is a valuable public service in a couple of respects. First of all, they got a pretrial ruling from the judge that Fox's reporting was false. The judge found that the evidence here was so strong that as a matter of law, 
Fox's coverage was false. The only disputed evidence was going to be, was it knowingly false? The other thing is Dominion, by going through the discovery process here, has exposed the lies behind Fox's reporting. Because of Dominion undertaking this lawsuit, that's why we've seen Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson's and Rupert Murdoch's texts and emails. And so while Dominion hasn't gone all the way through with this to the point of a jury verdict, they certainly have done a lot to expose the mendacity behind Fox's reporting. Laura, does this settlement set uh, any kind of precedent for defamation cases in the future, or not just the settlement, but the entire uh, case? Uh, l- and let's, let's be clear here. Uh, news organizations uh, get sued all the time for defamation. Mm-hmm. Usually the cases are thrown out of court uh, because there is a First Amendment in this country. It's very difficult to prove defamation. This case looked pretty solid from where I sit. Look, everyone who has a cell phone or has texted somebody or has engaged in online written memorialized communication, this sets a standard because now the statements that are made can be contrasted with what you've said privately versus on air, which makes it a little bit easier, according to the, this new statement here about the actual malice. It doesn't mean that you're going to prove it because somebody has a difference of opinion from what is being reported. But if there is some knowing disregard or reckless disregard for the truth, this has a price tag with it and it has a looming one. And as Ellie said, so I'm going to interrupt fact- I'm right now. I'm sorry, because I'm told the Dominion lawyers are about to speak. Let's listen in. Justin Nelson from Sussman Godfrey, proud counsel for Dominion Voting Systems. The truth matters. Lies have consequences. Over two years ago, a torrent of lies swept Dominion and election officials across America into an alternative universe of conspiracy theories causing grievous harm to Dominion and the country. Today's settlement of $787,500,000 represents vindication and accountability. Lies have consequences. The truth does not know red or blue. People across the political spectrum can and should disagree on issues, even of the most profound importance. But for our democracy to endure for another 250 years, and hopefully much longer, we must share a commitment to facts. Misinformation will not go away. It may only get worse. This litigation cannot solve all problems. All of us remain ever vigilant to find common factual ground. Today represents a ringing endorsement for truth and for democracy. And with that, I'd like to introduce the CEO of Dominion Voting Systems, John Polos. Uh, Thank you. Fox and Dominion have reached an, an historic settlement. Fox has admitted to telling lies about Dominion that caused enormous damage to my company, our employees, and the customers that we serve. Nothing can ever make up for that. 
Throughout this process, we have sought accountability and believe the evidence brought to light through this case underscores the consequences of spreading lies. Truthful reporting in the media is essential to our democracy. Dominion, our employees, our people, our partners are grateful to the court for allowing us the process for the truth to come out. I cannot thank the election officials that we serve enough. Without them, there is no democracy. And the work they tirelessly do to that end, and they deserve much better. We are grateful for all the support we have received, grateful to our legal team, and want to acknowledge Staple Street Capital, who have been unconditional in their support of Dominion and our customers. Uh, I want to introduce Hutanya Guzadeh, principal and founder of Staple Street Capital. So, can we just ask, should Rupert Murdoch apologize to you personally? Hi, I'm a co-founder of Staple Street Capital, which is the investment firm that owns Dominion Voting Systems in partnership with John Polis and the rest of the management team. It's not every day that an investment fund finds itself at the center of this type of dispute. For us, this case has always been about exposing the truth and holding those who knowingly spread lies accountable. We are proud to have played whatever part we could in helping Dominion achieve these important goals. I would also like to thank all the Dominion employees who have been through so much and stuck with the company through all this. We're all very proud of them. I also want to thank our attorneys at both Sussman Godfrey and Claire Locke for all their hard work. Without their efforts and resolve, the truth that has been exposed over the course of the last several months may have never seen the light of day. Thank you. With that, I'd like to hand it over to Stephen Shackelford. Hi, Stephen Shackelford with Sussman Godfrey. I am so proud to be here today representing Dominion. It's a great day for the company, although a bittersweet day for the company. Uh, as I was preparing today to give the opening that we never got to, I never got to give, uh, I was reminded of the hell that the Dominion employees went through and continue to go through to this day. Money is accountability. And we got that today from Fox. But we're not done yet. We've got some other people who have some accountability coming towards them. And I'm very proud of the team from Sussman Godfrey that has worked tirelessly for this case. And we'll move right on to the next one. Thank you. Did you get anyone an apology from Did you get anyone an apology or a written statement from Fox coming? Thank you. Anything else as part of this Is there anything else in this settlement besides money? Davida Brook, Sussman Godfrey. One last thank you, which is really to all of you for being with us on this journey. We appreciate what you've done to help us and to help expose what we were able to discover over the course of this process. And so thank you, and we'll see you at the next one. So we just heard from lawyers representing uh, Dominion Voting Systems after the company settled with Fox. The attorney, uh, Justin Nelson, announced 
the deal, it's a really unbelievable figure. Fox is going to pay Dominion Voting Systems $787 million, uh, Dominion's lawyer saying, quote, today represents a ringing endorsement for truth and for democracy. Fox trying to put a f- positive face on what can only be interpreted as one of the ugliest and most embarrassing moments in the history of journalism. Fox uh, issued a statement saying, quote, we are pleased to have reached a settlement of our dispute. Dispute. With Dominion voting systems, we acknowledge the court's rulings, finding certain claims about Dominion to be false. The settlement reflects, I'm sorry, this is going to be difficult to say with a straight face. This settlement reflects Fox's continued commitment to the highest journalistic standards. We are hopeful that our, sorry, we are hopeful that our decision to resolve the dispute with Dominion amicably instead of the acrimony of a divisive trial allows the country to move forward from these issues, unquote. Let's bring back CNN legal analysts Laura Coates and Ellie Honig. Wow. Um, so, Laura, $787,500,000. I can only assume that Fox is cutting this check because they feared that after a jury trial, not only would they have to pay more, but it would become even more obvious that they are not a journalistic organization that they're an organization that is just chasing ratings and viewers, and it doesn't really matter what they say, whether it's true or not, that's what their business model is. Look, as my father would say, that's not chump change. You're not going to go ahead and pay that amount of money because you believe that you were ultimately truthful and that you were going to prevail. This is a huge amount of money. They probably already endured quite a bit of attorney's fees. This is about half, though, of the $1.6 billion that they had asked for from the Dominion side, saying that money is accountability. But let me tell you the part that made me lean in, and that's when they said, We're not done yet. There are others who still need accounting. This is not the end of the road, because remember, it's one thing if you're talking about Fox News, but there were also people, individuals who were also vocalizing similarities. And you asked about whether a precedent was set. You better believe that everyone who is related to this particular news organization that made these statements knowingly or with a conscious disregard also are subject to some of the similar requirements of not defaming someone. And so if this is what Fox is willing to do, You can imagine what the individual would need to do. And it seems very clear. I'm glad they mentioned because we remember it wasn't just the company. Individuals were threatened. Physical harm was threatened. The lives of employees who were simply just trying to do their jobs. It's a heck of a message to send today. Yeah. And there are other cases going on. I believe those two election workers in Georgia are suing uh, the uh, right wing uh, website for lying about um, them. Ellie, uh, the Fox statement did not have an apology to its viewers or to Dominion. It did have this one line, quote, we acknowledge the court's rulings finding certain claims about Dominion to be false. So translated, that means Fox acknowledges that they aired and pushed lies about Dominion. Is that what that means? Yeah, translated, it means we got caught lying by the judge. And I think that's exactly why we are seeing this absolutely jaw-dropping number. I mean, let's be clear. This is an unequivocal rebuke of Fox News, of their reporting, of their quote-unquote journalism. I don't know. I'm not exactly a historian, but I don't believe I've ever seen a jury verdict or a settlement 
on the amount of $787 million. Now, yes, this is half of what Dominion was asking, but as you and I have discussed on air, I didn't think there was any way they would get $1.6 billion, even when they proved their case, even if they proved it overwhelmingly to a jury. Let's remember, by its own estimation, Dominion valued the entire company at somewhere between 30 and $80 million. This settlement is 10 times the value of Dominion as an entire company. That's how strong a statement this is with this number. Yeah, and, and I guess that answers the question I was going to ask Laura, which is, and we noted this uh, minutes ago before the press conference, Dominion is owned by a private equity firm. So a $787,500,000 check worth much, much more than the company uh, really solves the problem, right? Even though Dominion talked about the reputational damage the company faced, they can just shut down Dominion, start again under a different name and, and move on, I guess. You know, the point is, though, they ought not to have had to. And that's what this number suggests and what the rebuke from the court also dictates, that this is that they did not have to, but for the lies that were told and confirmed by a judge. And remember, 12 members of a jury were, de- were going to hear things that we had heard in the court of public opinion, but likely even more things, including having anchors, having key executives take the stand and try under oath. Remember, we always talk about you can lie to the press, right? You don't have to tell us the truth. There's not an oath for us, although you want that credibility and integrity. But a court of uh, actual law is wildly different. And this sets a very powerful precedent here. You know, the First Amendment actually means nothing if there are truly no standards or accountability. It means it's a free-for-all and you can say what you want and under the cloak and guise of saying it as the First Amendment. But the First Amendment actually has restraints. It actually has things you cannot do and cannot go beyond. And one of them is defamation. You cannot use your platform to try to hide behind the First Amendment by saying lies. And these lies had consequences to individuals, to a corporation. And don't forget the larger picture here. We're talking as we go into an election year, a presidential election year from the last one, that it has people believing that somehow this company was integral in trying to promote an election-related lie that did not happen. Yeah. And let's remember, there's still another defamation trial, I believe, that Fox is facing from Smartmatic, a different uh, uh, election technology uh, company, stick around. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more coverage of this breaking historic day. And we are back with our breaking news coverage. Just as opening statements were set to begin in what was going to be a historic trial, Dominion Voting Systems suing Fox for defamation. Uh, lawyers on both sides reached a settlement, an absolutely enormous settlement. A lawyer for Dominion announced that Fox would be paying Dominion $787,500,000. And in a statement, Fox admitted, quote, we acknowledge the court's rulings finding certain claims about Dominion to be false, which translated means that, yes, they spent months and months lying to their viewers about Dominion voting systems, among other things. Uh, And as a result, we're in such fear of what a jury trial might create in terms of both the settlement and embarrassment for the company. They wrote a check for $787 million, $500,000. CNN's Oliver Darcy is outside the courthouse in Wilmington, uh, Delaware. Um, Oliver, I assume we're not going to hear remarks from Fox's attorneys 
Um, one question I have is that Newsmax and OAN, which are these much smaller right-wing propaganda channels, they were forced to read statements on air uh, in which they acknowledged the falsehoods they had shared with their viewers. Is anybody who is watching Fox going to learn about this? Well, Jake, the Dominion team was asked in this short press conference after the settlement was announced whether there was more to the settlement. Will Fox anchors have to read statements saying that they misled viewers? Will there have to be an apology maybe coming from Rupert Murdoch? Has Rupert Murdoch called and apologized? We didn't hear anything from the Dominion side as of yet outside the money figure. And we did hear Dominion attorney uh, say that uh, money is... Uh, accountability. So unclear whether we're going to get more from uh, from the outside that Fox statement you just read, which is basically acknowledges what the court said, which is that they did tell lies on their channel. Uh, I also think it's important to keep in mind, Jake, that uh, Dominion wasn't the only voting technology company suing Fox News. Uh, you also have Smartmatic, which has filed suit against Fox News. Uh, for more than $2 billion. And so that's making the way through the core system as well. Uh, Smartmatic actually just put out a statement, their lead attorney, I want to read it to you, Jake, we just got this. He said, Dominion's litigation exposed some of the misconduct and damage caused by Fox's disinformation campaign. Smartmatic will expose the rest. And so Mm. there is more litigation, Jake, for Fox News to deal with uh, down the line, but still $787 million is not... uh, is not a small figure for Fox to have to shell out for, for those lies. No, and, and uh, as was noted uh, earlier by Ellie Honig, uh, the company isn't even worth $100 million, much less $787,500,000. Oliver Darcy, thanks so much. Uh, keep telling us uh, news as it develops. Let's bring back CNN legal analysts Laura Coates and, and Ellie Honig. Uh, Ellie, uh, what, what do you make about the fact that the settlement amount was not confidential? I'm sure Fox would have preferred that it was. Of course. This is a really surprising and important detail here, Jake, that the amount is not confidential. And that's why we just saw Dominion get out and proudly announce this really astonishing figure. I mean, it is, as we just said, it is 10 times what Dominion is worth. And so this dollar figure is, of course, about the bottom line. Like you noted, Dominion is not a large company. It's a privately held company. They have about 200, 250 employees. This is an overwhelming amount of money, but it's also a statement. It's also about the message that this dollar amount sends to Fox News and to the public about Fox News' lies. Laura uh, Oliver mentioned that Fox is still facing this other major defamation lawsuit from Smartmatic, another voting technology company uh, that was smeared by Fox after the 2020 election. That case is still in the discovery process. Um, How might this, as far as I can tell, historic settlement, $787,500,000, how might that affect the Smartmatic case? Well, it's about 785 million tea leaves now to read for the other legal team defending against this action involving Smartmatic. Remember, what's really important about this is this number is not appealable. It's not as if it was a jury verdict and a finding of damages where they can then go back and then litigate through a protracted proceeding and try to maybe even take it all up to the Supreme Court in a variety of ways. This is what they have agreed upon, and they are stuck with this number. It will also factor in, though, if you're talking about Fox News and what their overall bottom line will be. If you imagine what kind of pool of money you're going 
going to have access to in order to be able to pay out settlements. You're factoring in not just what's before you in front of you on this main plate of this trial, but what might be down the road. And it's going to significantly impact what is now available as part of that overall pot down the road. And so this shaving of about half of the amount that was requested before now opens up more room for settlement opportunities for Smartmatic to then say, well, hold on, I'll take the other half that you may have been willing to pay and anyone else who comes along. It does not guarantee they'll get it, but it does sweeten the power dynamic and leverage that now Dominion has to say, if we can get one judge to essentially say, what you have said is a lie. The jury will not even hear your argument about why it's not a lie or the First Amendment. That bodes well for their ability to persuade the next set of litigants about this issue. Ellie Honig, Laura Coates, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. New reaction coming in after this $787 million settlement was reached in the Dominion lawsuit against Fox. Also ahead, Americans very quick to pull a trigger. Now one young woman is dead and a young man's life is forever changed. New information in that case from Kansas City next. The big breaking news this hour, a $787,500,000 settlement reached in Dominion Voting Systems lawsuit against Fox. Fox agreeing to that historic paycheck in light of all of the lies that channel allowed, uh, pushed during and after the election of 2020. We're going to have more from Wilmington, Delaware in a moment, but let's turn to our national lead right now. Two cases of young Americans shot only because they accidentally showed up at the wrong house. A New York man has been charged with second-degree murder after police say he fired two shots into a car that had turned into his driveway on Saturday night. Officials say the group in the car realized they were at the wrong home in their rural New York neighborhood, north of Albany, and were trying to leave when one of the shots killed 20-year-old Kaylin Gillis. The shooting happened just days after a black teenager in Kansas City, Missouri, was shot twice by a white homeowner after going to the wrong address to pick up his little brother's. We're covering both of these shocking incidents, starting with CNN's Lucy Kafanov in Kansas City. And Lucy, the suspect in the case in Kansas City, 84-year-old Andrew Lester, he turned himself into police this afternoon, but we're learning he was, he was just released? That's right, Jake. I mean, the story keeps changing by the hour. This morning, we were wondering when this 84-year-old suspect would turn himself in. He finally did. We just learned that he has posted bond and been released, according to the sheriff's office spokesperson. Bail was apparently set at $200,000. Some of the conditions uh, included prohibiting Lester from possessing weapons of any type. He may not have any direct or indirect contact with Ralph Yarl, the 16-year-old uh, who he was accused of shooting. And Lester's phone is now subject to monitoring. It is, it is not clear at this point, Jake, whether Lester is going to appear in court for an initial hearing. We're obviously uh, trying to continue um, to, to speak to the legal representation for Lester. Uh, in terms of the charges that he's facing, we know that he is, uh, this is five days after he allegedly opened fire on this teenager uh, for showing up at the wrong address. Uh, he is apparently facing two charges. Uh, he could be, if convicted on those charges, uh, facing life behind bars. Uh, we we know that he's been accused of shooting Ralph Yarl through a glass storm door with a 32 caliber revolver. According to a probable cause statement that CNN obtained, Lester told investigators that he was in bed that night on April 14th when he heard the doorbell ring. 
He apparently grabbed this weapon, walked up to the door. Uh, he said after opening he, the main door, he, quote, saw a black male approximately six feet tall, and he believed, quote, someone was attempting to break into the house and shot twice within seconds of opening the main door. Lester said no words were exchanged. Ralph Yarl told officers that he heard the man say, don't come around here before shooting him twice. We are right now by City Hall where we are expecting a protest uh, in support of Ralph Yarl to begin any second now. Jake. Lucy Kafanov in Kansas City, Missouri. Thanks so much. Let's go to New York now where we find CNN's Bryn Gingrass. Bryn, walk us through what exactly happened when this 20-year-old woman was shot in upstate New York. Yeah, so Jake, according to the sheriff's department there, it was not just one car. There was actually a several groups of cars, two and a motorcycle that pulled up this driveway after kind of going up and down this street with no GPS access because there's not great cell phone reception reception in that area of New York, uh, headed up this driveway, realized quickly they were not at the home they were trying to reach, and then quickly decided to leave. And that's when they say shots were fired at the cars and the motorcycle as uh, it was leaving. One of those shots hitting right there. You see her 20-year-old uh, Kaylin Gillis. Uh, she actually died about five miles from the scene of that shooting as her friends raced away from the scene trying to get cell phone reception, calling 911. A paramedics arrived and she died there at the scene. Now, I did talk to the attorney for the man who is charged in this case. Uh, that man's name is Kevin Monahan. He's 65 years old. He's still awaiting a bail hearing on a second-degree murder charge. Now, his attorney says uh, he actually believes he was threatened by this group uh, that approached his house. Now, I brought that to the sheriff, and he says that's just not possible. Ballistics show that he fired these shots as the group was leading, as does witness account. So it'll be certainly interesting to see how this case plays out in the court system. But of course, at the end of the day here, Jake, there is a 20-year-old that has died because of this senseless tragedy. I want to read a statement that was given to me uh, from her family talking about Kaylin. They said Kaylin was a talented artist, an honor student, a Disney fanatic, and loved animals. She was looking forward to starting college in Florida to pursue her dream of becoming a marine biologist. Uh, she was taken from us far too soon, and we are devastated. And there's a GoFundMe page for that family, Jake. All right, Bryn Gingras, thank you so much. Let's bring in CNN Contributor Stephen Gutowski, he's the founder of The Reload, which covers guns and gun policy in the U.S. So, Stephen, let's start where Bryn just left off, this, this case, out of, case out of upstate New York. Um, I don't know what the laws are in every state. There's, there's stand-your-ground laws, which allows uh, firearms in self-defense, if you think that you're being threatened. Uh, the Castle Doctrine. Uh, does it, do either of them legally allow individuals just to shoot people for coming on their property? No. Uh, I mean, bottom line, they don't. What stand your ground laws do and castle doctrine, uh, they're, they're related to some extent. Stand your ground is about uh, eliminating the duty to retreat once you have already established that there's a reasonable threat to your life. Um, so in, in essence, you can use deadly force if you reasonably believe fear for your life uh, without having to retreat or, or some, uh, something along those lines. The castle doctrine essentially says that once someone has uh, unlawfully entered your home, someone has broken in, you can assume that that person is a deadly threat uh, and move forward from there. You don't have to... If they're in them. your home. If they're in your home. Uh, or if they're trying to break in, this may be relevant in the Kansas City case because of what the uh, shooter there has claimed. But I, I think in both of these situations, it's going to be extremely difficult for these two shooters to meet the, the reasonableness standard for a jury, you know, in, in yeah. a case. 
Let's talk about the Kansas City case because the suspect in that case has been charged. After media attention, we should note, they hadn't charged him uh, and he only did like two hours in the police uh, in the the police station before being allowed to go home after Mm -hmm. shooting this young man. Um, This shooter in Kansas City, he told police he was, quote, scared to death because of Ralph Jarl's size. He's about six feet tall, I guess. He's 16 years old. Um, A six-foot young man showing up at somebody's door, knocking on it, trying to open it. It, That's what the the shooter alleges happened. He was trying to open the door. I have have no idea if that happened or not. But even that, is that a threat? Does that constitute... um, is, it, is that enough justification to use deadly force? Uh, probably not. I will say that there's obviously a disparity uh, between the two of them because he's 84 years old and smaller and more frail. That, that could create a situation that, that a jury just looks at more favorably to someone. In, you know, if, 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 if you're of equal size and someone threatens you, it's different than if you're of equal you know, fighting strength and someone... Although, uh, we, yeah, we, I mean, but we should just know he hasn't even alleged that the guy, that the, yeah, that, they haven't, that they Ralph was threatening words. him. It was just that maybe he was, try, you know, knocking on the door. Or, and this is where the big problem comes in, I think, for this shooter, because he opened the door. He sees someone he claims was trying to get in uh, through a locked screen door, uh, not uh, glass door, storm door. And then he shot him through the locked door. And I think it's going to be very hard for a, anyone in a jury to believe that there was a reasonable fear for life at that moment when he pulled that trigger. And that's, that's going to be a big key in both of these situations. I mean, driving away, you shoot at a car that's driving away from you. How are you going to establish that, that's, that you reasonably feared for your life when they were leaving? Right. And how can you say that somebody was threatening your life when you didn't even exchange wor- a right. single word with them and you're, they're behind a door that's locked? It's very hard to see. Given what we know now, there may be more information that comes out that changes the story, but... It's difficult to see how these uh, end up as justified shootings. All right, Stephen Gutowski, thank you so much. Really appreciate your coming in. Thanks for being patient, too, with the breaking news. Appreciate it. We're going to go back live to Delaware next where new reactions coming in. After uh, attorneys uh, for Dominion Voting Systems reached uh, a $787 million, $500,000 settlement with Fox, Fox writing a big fat check for all those lies. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, beaten inside a Russian penal colony. Lawyers for Russian opposition, opposition leader Alexei Navalny say the Putin critic was dragged and kicked by prison guards. Now Navalny is facing new charges that could add time to his sentence. We're going to talk to the vice president of Navalny's anti-corruption foundation coming up. Plus, for a second day, word of major charges from the Justice Department, U.S. citizens allegedly working as illegal foreign agents. Yesterday it was China. This time it's agents of the Russian government. And leading this hour, just as opening statements were set to begin, a blockbuster settlement was announced in Dominion's defamation lawsuit against Fox. Fox cutting a huge check, $787,500,000 for its lies, paid from Fox to Dominion, along with an admission from Fox that, yeah, they aired lies to its viewers in the aftermath of the 2020 election. CNN's Danny Freeman is outside the courthouse for us right now in Wilmington, Delaware. Danny, uh, Dominion's lawyers are are celebrating this mind-bogglingly large settlement. Uh, But we still don't know all the full details. 
That's true, Jake. And I got to tell you, Dominion's attorneys, they were all smiles as they left the courtroom and that press conference that you played in the last hour. And they said to us, it's a good day for Dominion. This incredibly large settlement of $787 million is just less than half of the $1.6 billion that they were hoping for in damages. But again, still a sizable amount of money. And I want to say, Jake, while we still don't know all the details perhaps of the settlement. I want to paint a picture of the lead up to this moment. Remember, a jury had been sworn in. It was seated. Opening statements were ready to kick off at 1.30, but then there was that mysterious two and a half hour delay, and then the judge finally came out and said the parties have resolved their issues. In fact, the judge said that had the jury not been sworn in, the parties probably would not have resolved their issues, but that was a key factor. I want you to take a listen to what one of the Dominion attorneys had to say to us just moments ago here at the courthouse. The truth matters. Lies have consequences. Over two years ago, a torrent of lies swept Dominion and election officials across America into an alternative universe of conspiracy theories causing grievous harm to Dominion and the country. Today's settlement of $787,500,000 represents vindication and accountability. Lies have consequences. Now, Jake, the Dominion attorneys, they came to that podium right after court let out, but the Fox attorneys, they went down the street, did not take any questions from the press, and they basically walked away from the cameras. But we did get a statement that I'll read to you from Fox in the past hour. It says, we are pleased to have reached a settlement of our dispute with Dominion voting systems. We acknowledge the court's rulings, finding certain claims about Dominion to be false. This settlement reflects Fox's continued commitment to the highest journalistic standards, and we are hopeful that our decision to resolve this dispute with Dominion amicably instead of the acrimony of a divisive trial will allow the country to move forward from these issues. Now, I got to say, we that did not stop us, just that statement alone, from asking Dominion to your original question if there were other conditions of this settlement. I and other members of the press corps, we asked, will Fox, will perhaps Rupert Murdoch, the chairman of Fox Corporation, make an apology or make any sort of acknowledgement to Dominion beyond what that statement says? The Dominion attorneys did not give us any answers, so there's still more probably that we will learn about this settlement in recent days. But again, as you said, at this point, Dominion attorneys very, very happy at this outcome. Jake? Yeah, and to state the obvious, continue, you know, highest journalistic standards and $787,500,000 settlement to drop a defamation case, those do not belong in the same universe, those two phrases. Uh, Danny Friedman, outside the courthouse in Wilmington, Delaware. Thanks so much. Let's uh, bring in CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig and CNN anchor Allison Camerata, who used to work at Fox, we should know, so knows a little bit about the goings-on at that place. Allie, let's start with what we know about this deal. A massive payment from Fox, an admission that it aired lies to its viewers. Um, Are you surprised about the magnitude of this check that they have to write to Dominion? I am genuinely surprised at the size of this settlement, Jake, $787 million that they agreed to pay. And part of that is about the bottom line, but it's also about more than the bottom line. Let's remember, 
Dominion is not a large company, 200 some employees. Total value of the company is somewhere between 30 and $80 million. This is going to change their financial situation permanently and in a big way. But it's also about accountability. There's an unmistakable message being sent here. Fox News has admitted in its statement now that as the judge found, they lied. They lied to their viewers. That is an important admission that is vital. And it goes a long way towards accountability. Uh, Allison Camerata, let me ask you a question. I also want to note that we have uh, CNN media analyst Sarah uh, Fisher uh, with us. There was an interesting tweet from Gretchen Carlson yesterday, I think it was, hoping uh, that the trial would go forward. And she noted because she had signed an NDA because she had that whole settlement because Roger Ailes uh, had sexually harassed her. Uh, So she can't talk about her work at Fox. But she basically said she's not doing interviews about this case because she would be asked, did Fox ever ask you to say any, and, and her word was crazy shit, lies on air? Um, but you signed no such NDA. Uh, were you surprised about what, the Fo- what Fox did? I haven't been surprised by any of this, nor am I surprised by the settlement. I predicted there would be a settlement all along because Fox doesn't want to air its dirty laundry in a court case. And, I, and forgive me, I don't share quite... Ellie's, um, I guess, uh, being impressed at the outcome. This is half of what Dominion asked for, let's remember. And yes, obviously, it's a big windfall for Dominion. It's chump change for Fox. They make more than a billion dollars a year, their news division. And so this is, I think, this is a victory for Fox. They don't have to put their big stars on the stand, and they didn't even have to issue a public apology. When you guys say that they admitted that they lied, no, they didn't. They're saying uh, that we, we acknowledge the court's findings that certain claims about Dominion appear, uh, uh, about Dominion to be false. That doesn't say we lied. That says they're false. And they say certain claims. They're not even saying they made those claims. They're not even saying which hosts of theirs made their claims. I think that this is the best outcome that Fox could ever have hoped for once they got themselves into this mess. Well, we were translating it from lawyerese to English. Uh, but I take your point, Allison. Uh, that I they mean, did- they're not going to they're not going to have to say anything on the air. They're right. not going to have to say on the air. We we fudge the truth. We lied. We uh, disseminated disinformation. They're not going to have to. I mean, right. at least with Gretchen's settlement. Gretchen had a public statement that said to, uh, something to the effect of we acknowledge we apologize and regret the fact that Gretchen was not treated with respect and dignity. I mean, she got that in her settlement and Dominion didn't get that. Right. Well, and I mean, they didn't apologize publicly for uh, whatever they paid to the family of poor uh, Seth Rich, who was murdered. And Fox put out a whole bunch of insane conspiracy theories about that. Um, Sarah, do you agree with Allison here that this is the best possible outcome Fox could have gotten, even though it is this astoundingly huge check, embarrassing, truly, to any organization that considers itself journalistic or pretends to be journalistic to have to pay $787,500,000 to avoid a defamation lawsuit? But do you agree? I saw Colby Hall from Mediaite wrote something about, like, look, at the end of the day, Fox avoided six weeks of hideous coverage. Well, I do agree that reputationally this is good, Jake, but legally there are some problems. Fox faces a bunch of other defamation suits, most notably 
a $2.7 billion defamation suit from Smartmatic. And so when you concede, even if it's just in a legal context and you're not apologizing, that you did air falsehoods, that makes it a lot harder for you to litigate some of those future defamation cases, and there are a lot of them. Now, talking about the financial damages, yes, $787 million is just, you know, less than half of what Dominion was expecting. But if you were to compound that amount with these other cases coming up, I mean, this is going to add up to be pretty significant for Fox. Now, broadly speaking, I agree with Allison. This, you know, is a win in some senses because Fox is not having to face its viewers, is not having to apologize. We were in a reporter scrum a few minutes ago with Dominion lawyers, and we were asking them, are you going to demand retractions from Fox? They didn't say anything along those lines. And so I think what Dominion's strategy here was is, you know, we they definitely wanted to get Fox to acknowledge their wrongdoing. They wanted to embarrass Fox. But I think what they were able to do is get as much money as possible and concede on some of those things. I think that was what their strategy was here uh, at the court today. Yeah, I mean, they said money is accountability. And, and, and Ellie, as we discussed before, this is a, you know, Dominion's owned by private equity firms. Uh, you know, with all due respect, they don't care about making Fox apologize. They don't care about making it clear to Fox's viewers that they cannot be relied upon as a, as a source of information. They, they got a big check. But how does this settlement, do you think, Ellie, affect the Smartmatic case, if at all? Oh, it's great news for Smartmatic, Jake, because first of all, the number is enormous. Second of all, Smartmatic gets to use all this evidence, all these texts that we've learned about from people behind the scenes, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Rupert Murdoch. Those are all available to Smartmatic. They can use them to establish the same falsity. Now, as to Allison's point, I completely agree with her that one of the huge motivations for Fox News here is to avoid the absolute journalistic and probably legal disaster that would have come with having to put Rupert Murdoch on the stand. That was an important pretrial ruling that he did have to testify. The thing, though, looking at this from Dominion's point of view is you can't assume 100 percent a jury will come back in Dominion's favor. I think the evidence was very strongly in Dominion's favor, but juries are inherently unpredictable. There's 12 human beings. You get one person on that jury who sympathizes with Fox News, you're not going to get a verdict. The other thing is, I do not think it is at all safe to assume that Dominion, if they had won a verdict, would have been awarded $1.6 billion. Plaintiffs rarely get the amount they put in their complaints. Plaintiffs can put any amount they want in their complaints, and they rarely even get 50% of that from a jury. And in this case, if you're Dominion, you have to convince a jury to pay to give us damages for three, four, five, six times the value of the entire company. So I think what Dominion did here is they locked in a win, they locked in a payoff that was many, many times more than the value of the company. And they exposed Fox through the motions, through the pretrial rulings, through the finding of the judge, which Fox has now ad- acknowledged that the reporting was false. Ellie Honig, Allison Camerata, Sarah Fisher, thanks to all of you. Appreciate it. More breaking news this hour. Word of a parking garage collapse in lower Manhattan. People reportedly trapped inside. What we're learning about that one next. Plus, Putin critic Alexei Navalny facing additional time being tacked onto his sentence after his lawyers say guards at the Russian prison colony attacked him. Stay with us. And we're back with breaking news. You're looking at live pictures out of New York City where multiple people are injured and there are concerns that others may be trapped after a parking deck collapsed in lower Manhattan. CNN's Brent Gingrass is following this developing story for us. Brent, what are you hearing from the New York Fire Department? 
Yeah, Jake, you can see the enormous response that's happening in lower Manhattan, not far from City Hall here in New York City. What we're learning from fire officials is that a parking garage has collapsed and the structural stability of what's left is so compromised that the FDNY has actually had to pull back and is using drones and robotic dogs and other devices to search that area for any other people who still might be under uh, that wreckage or that rubble. Uh, According to John Miller, a source telling him that that six people are injured. It's not clear any further. Uh, furthermore, if there are people that are injured or, or any fatalities at this point, that's still being assessed. My understanding is that the mayor, uh, Eric Adams, he is there on the scene trying to get an update on what is happening there. But you can see, again, this huge response uh, for this collapse happening just about an hour ago. Again, six people injured, and we'll continue uh, to get more information and update you as this recovery effort, or research effort, rather, uh, continues. All right, Bryn Jingress, thanks so much. Uh, for a second day, major charges from the U.S. Department of Justice against U.S. citizens allegedly working as illegal foreign agents. We all have new details on that next. We have some breaking news for you. We have an update on the parking garage collapse uh, in lower Manhattan in New York City. City officials say, uh, tragically, one person has died. One person has died. That was one of the six people reported uh, injured. Uh, When we get more information, we will bring that to you. Until then, in our world lead, uh, yesterday, you might recall, we brought you news of alleged Chinese spies operating in the U.S. today, American citizens working on behalf of the Chinese government. Today, it's, it's Russians. A grand jury in Tampa, Florida, has indicted four U.S. citizens and three Russian nationals, uh, charging them with working on behalf of the Russian government to sow discord in the United States election. CNN's Evan Perez joins us now. Evan, uh, this indictment shows the lengths that Russia will go to, Putin uh, will go to, in attempts to interfere with our freedom and democracy. That's right, Jake. Uh, In this case, according to the prosecutors, uh, what the Russians were doing was working with uh, a couple of small uh, separatist movements uh, down in Florida, political movements down in Florida. Uh, their first goal was to try to interfere in uh, a local election down there, but their goal eventually was to try to use the same uh, platform to try to interfere in the 2020 election. We don't know what, the, what they actually ended up doing, uh, but here's what uh, the prosecutors outline in these in this in this uh, these charges against four members. These are leaders of a group called uh, the African People's Socialist Party, another one called the Uhuru Movement, uh, both of them in St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, They're being charged with uh, essentially helping uh, these Russians who were trying to sow discord. They were uh, one, on one hand, they were trying to make sure that uh, Russian propaganda about the takeover of Ukrainian territory uh, appeared to have popular support in the United States. And then secondly, they were trying to sow discord uh, among African-Americans, uh, again, over things like the George Floyd protests. These are, this is part of the goal that the Russians had. Uh, we reached out to the, uh, the, the, the main Russian who is charged here. His name is Alexander Yonov. And he responded saying, there is no democracy in the United States anymore. It is time to take to the streets and expel the authorities from the White House. Part of the message that the Russians have been trying to sow for a number of years, Jake. And also there is a separate case unsealed today charging Russian national Natalia Berlinova uh, with conspiring with a Russian FSB officer to act as an illegal agent 
of Russia. Is, is this a significant case? It is a significant case because it shows you, uh, you know, the, the multi-pronged uh, efforts that the Russians have been making to try to make inroads to American society. In this case, according to prosecutors here in Washington, what they were trying to do was essentially get people from universities, from uh, nonprofit uh, organizations to come to Russia again, the idea being to buy into the Russian propaganda and to come back to the United States and spread that uh, in U.S. society. Again, part of the effort uh, that the Russians are doing to try to do influence here in the United States, given uh, the, 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 the state of, of relations that we have with that country at this point. All right, Evan Perez, thanks so much. In sure. Russia, Putin critic and opposition figure Alexei Navalny is facing new charges after having been beaten in his cell by prison guards, according to his lawyer, who says Navalny now faces an additional five years on his sentence. Navalny is currently serving a nine-year term in a Russian penal colony on charges that the U.S. State Department calls unjust and politically motivated. Joining us now, Anna Veduta. She's the vice president of the Anti-Corruption Foundation, which Navalny founded. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. I know you're in contact with Navalny's attorneys. Uh, how, how is he doing right now? Well, not, not that good, actually. Um, the situation is critical. His life is in grave danger at this point. Uh, just the other week, uh, his lawyers told us that uh, he's lost uh, 18 pounds in two weeks. And then that they were uh, thinking that he might be uh, administered small doses of poison, so to kill him steadily. Today, we learned that he was actually, the, the actual line of the physical violence has been crossed with him. So they grabbed him, they kicked him, they bitten him, and then accused him of, you know, of, uh, doing pretty much the same to the other cellmate, which he never did, of course, because he refused to succumb to these uh, barbaric rules and to beat another person. But this is where we are right now. So we are at the point where they use physical violence against him, and once this Pandora box is open, we cannot rule out that they might smother him or cut him or beat him further and just kill him. I mean, losing 18 pounds, uh, being poisoned, allegedly, being beaten, um, these are all horrific, horrific accusations. I don't doubt them for one second. Have uh, Russian prison authorities responded at all to any of these allegations? Well, they neglect those. Uh, for example, Navalny was warned by one of the people in, in prison that there is this provocation uh, cooking up against him. And his lawyers actually notified uh, the Human Rights Commission or the Russian Human Rights Commission in writing that they have this information and should, did nothing to prevent it. And so does the prison administration. They just ignore any appeals, uh, anything that, you know, that is aimed to make Navalny's life at least bearable. And, and obviously the reason that Putin is doing this is because Navalny is a charismatic figure uh, and, and ultimately you know, would have and does enjoy popular support uh, in Russia. He's been repeatedly placed in solitary confinement. Are his attorneys even able to meet with him? Yes, the attorneys are able to meet with him, but it doesn't help his case because most of his time he spends in this uh, you know, very small concrete cage. It's an airless cage. And just this provocation, the grounds of this provocation were that he wasn't able even to enter it because of the smell, because his uh, cellmate who was placed there is a person who lacks hygiene, um, excuse my language, hobo, who was prohibited from using toilet paper. So you can only imagine the, the smell in this uh, cell. So everything which is 
done against Alexei is to make his life unbearable and to make him suffer and regret that he came back and to silence him, of course. Yeah. Because he's still able, every time he sues his penal colony and he has these uh, hearings, he uses every opportunity to oppose the war and to call Russians to protest against the war, to fight against the war in Ukraine. So, and, and that's why his uh, situation exacerbates day by day. What about his family? Do, do his wife or his parents have access to him? No, they can't call him. They can't visit him. They can't send parcels to him. The prison colony administration just refuses to take those parcels, although they do send it to him. And Anna Vaduta, thank you so much uh, for being here. Uh, keep us posted. Continue to come back and tell us the story of this brave man um, so unfairly and unjustly imprisoned uh, by Putin. Thank you so much. Still ahead, the governor of Oklahoma is calling for four county officials to resign after they were allegedly recorded uh, threatening to kill journalists and finally reminiscing about the days of lynchings. Stay with us. And we're back with our national lead. In Oklahoma, Republican Governor Kevin Stitt is calling for the resignation of four officials from McCurtain County, officials who allegedly made disturbing comments about lynching Black people and killing journalists, a secret audio recording, captured the remarks and was published by a local newspaper over the weekend. CNN's Ed Lavendera takes a closer look now into what was said and why the sheriff's office claims, claims the recording was altered. The weekend edition of the McCurtain Gazette News dropped an epic bombshell on its readers in southeast Oklahoma. The headline was understated yet chilling. County officials discuss killing, burying Gazette reporters. And Bruce and Chris Willingham, the father and son reporting team at the heart of this story, published the recordings that they say involve five McCurtain County officials to back up their story. I was expecting it, you know, chitter chatter stuff about county business and stuff. And, and that's how it started. And then it got down to the um, extremely serious stuff. The paper reported Sheriff Kevin Clardy was joined in a March 6th meeting by two other Sheriff's Department officials as well as two county commissioners. They were talking about killing me and my son. I've known two or three hitmen that were very quiet guys. Yeah. And would cut no person. Yeah. In Louisiana. The recordings captured the group talking about hiring hitmen to kill the reporters and where the bodies could be hidden. It goes around, goes around it. It will. I told you it will. I know where two big deep holes are here. I got an escalator. These are our three duds. Bruce Willingham says he legally recorded the conversation because he was looking to prove that county officials were violating open public meeting laws but was stunned at what he actually captured. It was appalling. (laughs) I mean, you cannot imagine uh, my reaction when I heard it. The recordings also included racist talk of lynching black people. If it was back in the day, would that doctor take a damn blackjack, whoop their ass and throw them in the cell? I'd run for the chair. Yeah, well, it's not like that no more. I know, (laughs) take them down on on Mud Creek and hang them up with a damn rope. Yeah. But you can't do that. They got more rights than we got. CNN has not been able to verify the authenticity of the recording or confirm who said what. CNN has reached out to the county officials for comment. In a statement, the McCurtain County Sheriff's Office did not address any of the shocking statements, but instead claimed the recordings were altered and the conversations were recorded illegally. Oklahoma's Republican governor says 
He's appalled and disheartened by the county officials' comments and has called for the sheriff and three others to resign. A group of protesters also showed up at a county commissioner's meeting demanding the officials reportedly captured on the recording resign. And the mayor of Idabel, where the newspaper is located, also wants them to resign. I hate to know that this is 2023 and we still have folks who want to live like the 1921 Al Capone lifestyle when you start talking about lynching and killing folks and act like human lives don't mean anything to you. And Jake, the Oklahoma Attorney General says state authorities are investigating these threats. The Oklahoma Sheriff's Association said today that it has suspended the membership of the sheriff and the two deputies involved in that conversation. And we've also been told today that the reporters, Bruce and Chris Willingham, were advised to leave town temporarily and that they have. Jake? Ed Lavendera with a shocking story out of Oklahoma. Thank you so much. Coming up, disturbing details in a new report showing how the Taliban is targeting Afghan allies that the U.S. left behind after the U.S. military withdrawal from Afghanistan in August 2021. This comes as a brand new action film showcases the importance of that bond between U.S. military service members and Afghan interpreters. I'm going to talk to actors Jake Gyllenhaal and Dar Salim about this issue and their film next. In our world lead, a dire situation for Afghan citizens who supported the United States' 20-year mission in Afghanistan. It takes an average of two and three-quarters years to get these individuals to the U.S. on a special immigrant visa. And all the while, the Taliban is engaging in a systematic effort to hunt down and murder them. That is according to a new report from the Association of wartime allies, which keeps track of the status of special immigrant visa-eligible individuals left behind after the U.S.'s ignominious withdrawal from Afghanistan in August 2021. Now, a U.S. State Department report from October 2022 shows more than 131,000 applicants are in the pipeline, but this Associated Association of Wartime Allies report just out this week says at the current rate... It's going to take more than 31 years to process the backlog. That's not red tape. That's a red brick wall. And on the other side of that wall is desperation, the desperation of people who risk their lives to help American service members do their job. The report survey of Afghans shows that 76% personally have witnessed violence towards people who supported the U.S. mission, and only 39% of survey respondents knew of someone who was the victim of torture or targeted killing by the Taliban. That's still a lot, though. Many others have been detained, imprisoned, lost a job, faced economic hardships, skipped meals because of their service to the United States. And the desperate plight of our Afghan allies has caught the attention of Hollywood. In the new movie from Guy Ritchie, The Covenant, which opens this Friday, uh, which stars Jake Gyllenhaal as a U.S. Army sergeant, and Dar Salim is an Afghan translator, it is depicted this moral issue. The two men served together in Afghanistan several years before the U.S. withdrawal. And what follows, and when you see the film, is an action film with a moral message. And joining me now, actors Jake Gyllenhaal and Dar Salim, co-stars of The Covenant. Gentlemen, the film is fantastic. Congratulations. Um, Jake, let me start with you. Your, your character essentially says, screw the, screw the red tape. I'm going back into Afghanistan to save the man who saved me. And 
as you and I have talked about this, this is an action film parable. At its heart is a, is a lesson of morality and, and obligation. What do you want audiences to take away from this? I mean, first and foremost, I want them to be entertained, you know. I mean, I think we go to the movies for that. It's full of action and it's full of tension. And to me, that's one of the, you know, most important parts of making movies. But I think uh, the, the other part of it for me is this, this sort of ethos of, you know, nobody left behind. You know, we have that. And as Americans, I think that's, uh, that's the essence of who we are. And Dar, you were born in Iraq. You grew up mostly in Denmark, where you spent time in mandatory military service. Did that background inform your preparation for this role? And, and how did you research what it, what it means to be an interpreter under circumstances like these, uh, life and death? All our life experience goes into all the roles that we play. And obviously some things are like one-to-one being in a military service or being coming from a refugee family, uh, having lived a life in in many different countries and coming from different backgrounds. That obviously informed. I have a lot of friends from Denmark who are veterans as well. Uh, we were involved in both wars in Afghanistan and Iraq as well, alongside with the U.S. soldiers. Uh, I spoke a lot to them. And um, as Jake points out, points out um, I think the beauty of the film is that you have this meeting between two very different people who are from different cultures and who don't necessarily trust each other at the beginning. And that is kind of a metaphor for, you know, the world we live in today where we are told about all the things that divide us uh, all the time. But at the end of the day, you find these two men who both choose to do the right thing despite of the hardness and the hardship that they will face by doing so. And it shows that at the end of the day, they just want to have a situation where they can take care of their families and be safe and um that's what unites us more than all the things that divide us. And that's the, I think that's the beauty of this relationship that evolves during the film. You know, one of the great things about it is that the characters don't necessarily even like each other. It's not about affection. Um, and, and Jake, uh, this is not your first war movie. Obviously, uh, almost 20 years ago, uh, you, you starred in Jarhead playing a, a Marine in, in the Iraq War. But, but as you know, uh, in a way, this film is, it's, well, it's very different. Those two, these two films couldn't be more different in, in a way. And this film, uh, Sergeant John Kinley, whom you play, he really represents the best of America or what we should at least aspire to be. Mm, yeah. I mean, I think there is an evolution. In, in a film like Jarhead, it's an action movie, and it's about a thing where two, two people um, actually do something for each other. You know, um, and not as much is said um, as done. And I think that is what makes the movie so interesting. And I think actually with experience, that's what you start to realize. It's, it's what you do, you know. And so that's why I love the character. And it is definitely evolution from the young recruit to, you know, the now older and hopefully wisened uh, special operator. And, and Dar, at the, at the, as we've talked about, the, at the heart of their, the film is this relationship between these guys and their obligation to one another. And there's this um, very moving moment when your character, Ahmed, builds a contraption to help carry uh, grievously wounded Sar- uh, Sergeant Kinley a- across the mountains. Um, it could be seen in a way uh, uh, as a representation of the bond that was formed between so many translators uh, and Amer- American uh, soldiers, service members. Um, w- did you take anything away personally from the experience, given the fact that this is a current debate in the United States about 
trying to save people in Afghanistan who are still there who risked so much to help American service members? Absolutely. I mean, in the heart of it, first of all, it's, it has to be a very good story, and it has to be told in a way which only Guy Ritchie can tell it. It's very big. It's very cinematic. It's very entertaining. You kind of can't take your eyes off these guys from the beginning to the end. But the, the matter of fact is, the truth is that all U.S. soldiers did put their lives on stake every day, and all interpreters did put their lives on stake every day alongside the U.S. soldiers. That's the truth of it. And um, that truth kind of just goes through the whole, the whole movie. And uh, as far as I know, more than 300 interpreters have lost their lives in service uh, with the American soldiers um, and alongside with the Danish soldiers as well. And uh, I feel definitely that there is an, an obligation to fulfill those promises. And, and Jake, in addition to, to people watching the film and enjoying the film, because it really is just a, a, an amazing action film and beautifully shot, uh, in Spain, uh, substituting for Afghanistan there. A lot of policymakers watch the lead. What, what do you want them to understand about this film and its message? Having it not be partisan is, is a really important thing. And I think, you know, I, I, think, that it's a, I think that it's a story about uh, our obligation. And um, I think we're a country of heroes, you know, Oftentimes reluctant ones, but uh, heroes nonetheless. And I think that is sewn into our fabric. And I think oftentimes we are our best as Americans when we ask ourselves, how do we do good for one another uh, and for those who've helped us? Jake Gyllenhaal and and Dar Salim, uh, thank you so much. Congratulations on the film, Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. Uh, it's, It's amazing and the message is powerful. Thank you, Jake. Thank, Thank you, very you much. so much for having us. Thank you. And just FYI, I thought this movie was so powerful, this movie that uh, comes out on Friday. I told Jake that I would be willing to host a screening for lawmakers and policymakers here in D.C., and I'm doing that tonight. The message of what the U.S. owes these Afghans, the covenant, is relevant. The movie comes out Friday. The big news this evening, Dominion reaching that massive settlement with Fox. Alex Marquardt's in the Situation Room for one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. Knox, you're going to be getting new reaction to this mind-blowingly huge check that Rupert Murdoch's going to have to write. Yeah, almost $800 million, Jake. Uh, We will be digging into this major breaking news, the settlement between Dominion Voting Systems and Fox News. We will be speaking with a lawyer for Dominion Voting Systems, Justin Nelson, getting his reaction, as well as a lawyer for the former Fox News producer, Abby Grossman. Lots to dig into with them. There's also a lot of news on the national security front. And we have a joint interview with the heads of the House Intelligence Committee, the Republican chairman, uh, Mike Turner, as well as the ranking member, Jim Heim. So lots to get into with them. That's coming up in just a few moments right here in the Situation Room. All right, Alex, we'll see you in just a few minutes in that room that you're in. I think it's called the Situation Room. Still ahead, a disturbing report coming out on Holocaust Remembrance Day. Bank accounts with ties to Nazis at Credit Suisse one of the world's largest lenders. Bank accounts never disclosed until now. Stay with us. And we're back with our politics lead. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is pleading with his fellow Republicans to support his plan to raise the nation's debt ceiling. Uh, Much like during the run-up to the chaotic Speaker's vote, McCarthy's allies are projecting confidence that he will have the needed 218 votes. But Many Republicans tell CNN they are not yet on board. CNN's Manu Raju is live for us on Capitol Hill. 
Uh, Manu, uh, what are you hearing from Republican lawmakers? Well, Jake, I just spoke with the speaker himself, Kevin McCarthy. You told me that, yes, he does have the votes to pass this debt limit increase next week. That is the ambitious plan by the House speaker. In order to do that, he needs to limit defections. No more than four House Republicans can vote against this. If more than four vote against it, then this measure will sink. And there are already several who have raised concerns. Either they want to see the details, the details have not been released yet, or simply have philosophical disagreements about raising the debt limit at all. People who say that they would never vote to increase the debt limit. McCarthy has to win them over as well. As part of this plan, it would increase the debt limit for one year, just one year, kicking it into the election year of 2024. But it would pair it with spending cuts, everything from capping domestic spending at 2022 levels. That means significant cuts to domestic programs across the board, except for defense programs, also imposing new work requirements on Medicaid, as well as rescinding money that was enacted as part of the COVID relief law. All part of an effort, Republicans say, to get to about three to four trillion dollars in budget savings over the next decade. But even if they are able to get this out of the House next week, which is an open question, the Senate Democrats say this is dead on arrival in their chamber. And the White House says that the House Republicans should simply pass a debt limit increase without any conditions and any cuts whatsoever. So, Jake, even if the Republicans succeed, they believe that will strengthen their negotiating position. But the White House is not budging from their position against any negotiations whatsoever, raising questions that the country could face its first ever default as soon as this summer. All right, Manu Raja on Capitol Hill for us. Thanks so much. Turning to our money lead, Credit Suisse, one of Switzerland's oldest banks, is accused of failing to disclose its relationships with high-ranking Nazi officials. The U.S. Senate Budget Committee released two reports today which detail how the Swiss bank maintained accounts for Nazis well beyond World War II. Some accounts, uh, the study says, uh, were open as recently as three years ago. All of this being disclosed on Holocaust Remembrance Day. Sinan's Tom Foreman's here. Tom, uh, tell us more of what these reports uncover. Well, what they uncover, if you listen to what the ombudsman said who was overseeing it, whose report on this was subpoenaed by the Senate, what it says is that they found out a lot of information about what was going on with accounts that were tied to Nazis, former Nazi sympathizers, people with ties like that. Among the things that they found, if you look at their, their findings from the letter from the Senate, was that they had these uh, uh, bank accounts appear to have been maintained for at least... 99 senior Nazi officials in Germany or members of Nazi-affiliated groups in Argentina by Credit Suisse. 70 Argentine accounts opened in, after 1945, 14 stayed open into the 21st century, 21 accounts identified from a list of notorious high-level Nazis. Now, here's what complicates this matter. This report was subpoenaed. It came from this ombudsman who had been working with the investigative group for Credit Suisse. Then they got rid of him. They pushed him out, and Congress said, well, we want to see your report anyway. Credit Suisse is saying, look, uh, everyone did some good work here, but big misunderstanding. If you look at their statement, what they're saying about this information is that really he didn't quite understand it. Credit Suisse's decision to stop its review midstream has left many questions unanswered, including questions about the thoroughness of its prior investigative efforts, the extent to which it served Nazi interest and the bank's role in servicing Nazis fleeing justice after the war. Basically, they're saying it's just not clear really what happened here. We can clear it all up. And they were shutting the investigation down until the Senate stepped in and said, 
this is not adequate. You need to do something more here. You can't simply say there's nothing to find here. So the ombudsman uh, for Credit Suisse, he was a, he was hired by Credit Suisse to yes, look into this, correct. right? Is it Neil Barofsky? Yes. I see the name. So he used to be uh, the inspector general for TARP. Yeah, he's a guy who knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. He has tremendous integrity, right. uh, Neil Barofsky. So they're, they're just saying he didn't know what he was talking about? Well, what they're saying is that he didn't really understand the full scope of everything. Uh-huh. One of the complaints here was that they were limiting the scope. For example, when they found an account that had a tie to Bolivia instead of Argentina, that was pushed aside. Well, that's not what we're investigating. Uh The question about things that came up after the war versus the immediate wartime or immediate aftermath of the war, all that complicated things. Barofsky put out his own statement, which is really quite interesting to look at. He said um, that... uh, uh, that, that there really was, well, this is This is the Credit Suisse statement. That's the Credit Suisse statement, yeah. yeah. But Borofsky's statement, basically what he said is, look, by cutting this thing short, you left way too many things unanswered here. This is too important. We have to work our way through it. And Credit Suisse has agreed now, yeah, they'll go back to work on this. Yeah, with well, this if it's between uh, these bankers and Neil Borofsky, I know who I well, who I trust. Uh, all <laughs> I right. think a lot of people listen in it as well. It's, yeah, Tom Foreman, thank you so much. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Alex Marquardt in for Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Thanks for watching. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.